We're going to start a series through Ephesians. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we'll, we will be studying through the book of Ephesians here over these next few months to come. And I want us to focus today, though, on what an old pastor friend of mine used to call tweeners. You know what a tweener is, don't you? That's something that's in between something else. And oftentimes a tweener just gets glossed over because it is something that's just in between. Now, I, I know this is at the beginning of our text and the beginning of the letter that we're going to be studying, but it's such a common salutation that oftentimes we might take it for granted or see it as one of those tweeners. So I don't want us to miss out on the richness, or as uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say, we want to mine the depths of every aspect of God's Word as He's given it to us. So I invite you to join me in that today. I'm just going to read the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses are rich. These verses are full of what we need to take notice of. But I also want to share with you today, and I I got his permission, a dear friend of mine I've known for years. Uh, We no longer geographically live near each other. But I got his permission to share his story because I believe it's probably there are probably aspects in the story of his life early on that many of us can relate to. Maybe not the details, but the understanding of this idea of grace and peace. And this dear friend of mine, at the ripe old age of 23, began what... Now, some of you are laughing because you view 23-year-olds today like I used to think I was when I was 23. How many of you had the world in your hand when you were 23 years old? You had it all figured out. You knew everything. There just wasn't anybody asking you for the answers, was there? <laughs> that, that was me at age 23. Okay? I'm amazed how much I realize I didn't know when I was 23 at the age that I am today. But in this life experience of my friend George, he was just beginning what he saw to be this great new career in sales. Little did he know until after he no longer worked at that office where he thought his lifelong career had begun, what was going on behind the scenes. He was in sales for the first time, and it was a legitimate company. I don't have permission to share the company's name, so I'm not going to because that isn't necessarily play part of the story. But my friend George gave me permission to share with you about this brand new and exciting adventure that he was beginning in his life. I mean, it was all new to him. And in his excitement and his expectation, boy, he went at it full steam ahead. Sadly, as we grow and mature, reality can be the dart that pops our balloon. You've seen those carnival games, haven't you? You know, where there's just a wall of balloons and people throw darts or there's Stacks of milk bottles and people are throwing baseballs at them. Or there's the target, you know, and people are firing the pellet guns at the target. How many of you feel more like you're the target (laughs) than the dart or the baseball? That's exactly what happened 
to George. And I don't know about you, but in my life, there's been more times than not that I've been tired of being the target. I wonder how many young people who are here today are already experiencing that in your life. George is a little bit older than I am, and the culture in which we grew up, everyone didn't instantaneously know what you were thinking or doing. Um, they didn't have that kind of technology when I was 23, in case you're figuring out in your head, what is in the world are you talking about? But oftentimes, just as the words in this salutation are overseen and commonplace, we easily gloss over and maybe even ignore a perspective that's true for us as believers. And so I want us to understand these opening words in relation to the whole. And we'll get into the rest of Ephesians as we move forward. But really the words grace and peace give us the two main divisions of the book of Ephesians. There's the first three chapters, which give us just unimaginable expressions of what God has done for us in His grace. And we get both this eternal as well as earthly realm of reality in knowing God's grace and what He's done for us. But in the second half, you know, the book of Ephesians gives us the peace or helps us understand what the peace of God does for us in the lives that we live. You know, in the second half of Ephesians, it tells you husbands how you're to be in relation with your wife. Wives, it tells you, tells you how you're to be in relation with your husband. It tells children how they're to honor and obey their parents. Yes, that's in the Bible. Your parents didn't just make that up. But see, all of those aspects of life are come from... And what the apostle is spelling out for us, all of those aspects are challenging and difficult, but God gives us the peace because of the grace of knowing his son Jesus Christ and what he's done for us to be able to live that way. So there really is this idea of grace in the first half of the book of Ephesians and peace in the second to live out what God is teaching us. Now, I want to make sure I stress that an important aspect of looking at any portion of Scripture is to view it from a scriptural standpoint. See, too many people today see the Bible as a pathway to prosperity or a list of ingredients for self-improvement or some recipe for righteousness. As if I just do, then everything's going to be okay. And some even see it as this book of rewards that God has promised and has guaranteed to do if we just do the right things at the right time. Folks, let me tell you, none of that is a biblical way to look at the Bible. The Bible was written so that we would know about God and what God has done. And you say, but wait a minute, Pastor John, there are parts of the Bible that apply to me. Yes, you are a sinner, and there's none good, no, not one. Okay, so don't feel left out. Don't feel like God's hurting your feelings not talking about you. We're so self-centered in our culture today. God has let you know everything you need to know about you. You're a sinner. And you deserve eternity in hell. But what God has given us the scripture for is so that we can know of his goodness. In fact, the Bible itself clearly indicates its own purpose. 2 Timothy 3.16, Daniel gave us an excellent sermon on that just a few weeks ago. It says this, all scripture is God-breathed 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Beyond the God-breathed and the profitable for teaching, God's telling us, look, you're not only a sinner, you need my words to get your life right. That's what the rest of that verse is describing. In Isaiah chapter 40 and in 1 Peter, the Bible says, "The the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The apostle Paul's writing to an early church and says, We thank God for this. What is he thanking God for? Well, the verse 13 goes on to say that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in those who believe. So God has given us not only his word, but he's given us his word and how we should see his word. In John chapter 17, Jesus Christ, you know, anytime you're talking about the Bible, just go to the trump card, Jesus Christ, right? I I was kind of making fun there. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or anything. Didn't get any laughs, though. Jesus Christ prayed to God the Father, your word is truth. Jesus Christ also said in John chapter 5, as he was warning the religious... He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. See God's purpose for writing the Bible? See God's, Jesus Christ said it himself. If all the rest of that scripture wasn't enough, Jesus Christ is saying, look, you think, because let me tell you, there were some religious folks that would put us to shame when it just came to religion. They were at the temple every day. They memorized the first five books of what we know of the Old Testament. They prayed. I mean, if they were really devout, they prayed for hours every day. They tithed on everything. Okay, I'm just telling you, if religion was the way it was all supposed to go, there were people in Jesus' day that would keep us out. (laughs) We wouldn't stand a chance. Jesus said, no, You're getting into the scriptures because you think by obeying and by your own works that you have eternal life. He said, no, the scriptures are what bear witness of me. See, if we're going to go to the Bible, we need to understand the Bible is telling us about God and what God has done for us in Christ. And the more we know of God and who he is, the more our response should be like Isaiah recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I mean, that's how awesome God is. The psalmist said in Psalm 29, everyone in the temple says, glory. There's no casual observers of God in God's presence. There's no one standing in the presence of God going, let me think about this. (laughs) No. That is not happening. And unfortunately, we take such a dangerous, self-centered perspective in regards to Scripture that that's what gets us in trouble. It gets us in trouble. So I trust that we'll experience the book of Ephesians 
as we do the very sun, S-U-N, in our solar system. Let me tell you about the sun in our solar system. Its exposure will bring impact upon you. Now, that, that impact's different for different people, but if you're going to just stand out in the sun, something's going to be impacting you from the sun's rays, okay? You've all heard your dermatologist say that, right? They've warned you about just being out in the sun. And you see, it's nothing you do. The sun just shines and sends out those rays because that's what it was created to do. It just is, and those UV rays just happen. See, you don't have to do anything but be out in it, and you're going to be affected by it. The problem is too many of us as Christians put on too much biblical sunscreen. Say too much biblical sunscreen? I mean, I understand my dermatologist warning me I can get too much of the S-U-N. What do you mean by biblical sunscreen? Here's what I mean by biblical sunscreen. And the SPF depends on the degree to which you use it. Oh, by the way, biblical sunscreen, the SPF, SPF is some personal feelings. Come on. You need to start confessing now? We go to the Bible with our personal feelings. Folks, the Bible is God revealing himself to us. We need to stop approaching the Bible with our own personal feelings and let the truth of God's word impact us just as standing out in the sun would impact your skin. And there may be feelings that come as a result, but don't look at the Bible in light of your feelings. That's a dangerous place to be. As we look at the introduction to Ephesians, let me touch on some more language and literature in regards to the book of Ephesians. I believe it'll be helpful here because we don't want to miss the context of what's taking place. See, Paul was writing to a first century group of Christians. Now, God's truth is God's truth. God's truth was God's truth in the first century. God's truth is God's truth in the 21st century. But meaning of words, the meanings of words are vital in regards to their original context. Otherwise, it's easy to propagate falsehood or just flat out be misleading in what we teach. So, some of the literary facts in the book of Ephesians. The term in Christ or in Him, referring to Christ, that pronoun in Him referring to Christ, appears a dozen times in the six chapters that we have written. Grace is a main key and also appears 12 times throughout the Scripture. Get get that connection, grace and Christ. See, God's trying to reveal to us some important aspects of what we're to learn. Another aspect of language, there are different types of verbs. There are indicative verbs and imperative verbs. And from those indicatives and those imperatives in the original language, oftentimes they lose translation when you read them in the English language. Any of you who speak multiple languages, you understand. It, everything doesn't always translate directly. So, as a parent or an employee or a manager or a child, 
you need to understand the imperatives, because the imperatives are God's directions for you to obey. But you also need to pay close attention to what's been provided. If you're a boss or a manager or a supervisor or a parent here today, now let's just, let's just pause and step back for a moment. Wouldn't it be silly to require something that you hadn't provided for your child or your employee? I mean, you tell your employee to load all these boxes in the truck. But there's no truck. I mean, yeah, that's kind of silly. See, God hasn't done that. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's telling you everything he's provided for you. And the last few chapters of Ephesians, he says, now here's what you're to do with what I've provided. Parents, after you regained consciousness and got up off the floor from your child saying, mom and dad, I want to clean my room. You'd say, well, there's the vacuum. There's the broom. There's the duster. There's even a closet and a dresser in there for you to put your clothes in. Is that miraculous? No. (laughs) It's just obedience. The cleaning supplies and the place for you to put your clothes are already provided for you. Right, parents? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. It's that idea. God has already provided everything we need. So when we get into the last half of the book, we can't be looking at God's scripture and saying, oh, I can't do that. God's already provided all we need to live in obedience to him. In fact, in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, there's only one, one imperative verb. You know what an imperative is, right? That's that's a command or a direction. There's only one in the first three chapters. So what I want us to begin to wrap our minds around, as we'll be looking at those first three chapters over the next few weeks, is those first three chapters of Ephesians are just God telling us who he is and what he has done. Don't try to take it and make an imperative out of something that's not an imperative. Just bask in the glow and in the information and in the knowledge and in the reality of who God is and what he has done for us. And as we do that, then we will be empowered by just knowing of God and knowing God personally, we'll be empowered to live the imperatives that follow in the second half of the book. See, this this information is vital. My friend George, who began his adult life and career as a salesman in this office to which he was beginning, he later found out that literally... Every office worker would set up an office pool for the brand new salespeople. I'll give him a week. I'll give him two weeks. I'll give him three. They did, he found this out later. That everyone in the office, as soon as those new salesmen came in, were trained and went out. I mean, they, they were serious. They pulled out their money. That, that, that guy won't last a, that guy won't last a day. I mean, they, they literally began to wager on how long these new salesmen would last. George was one of those new salesmen. 
one of those first-time salesmen in this company. Now, while you're sitting there thinking, boy, how terrible is that? Let me tell you, the world is working against you in the same way. And like George, beginning as a new employee, you just may not be aware of it. You just may not be aware of it. See, I'm certain that there were people who were willing to quickly collect on their wager when George didn't last four weeks. I mean, he was out of that office within four weeks. Folks, let me tell you something. Jobs are going to come and go. People are going to come and go. Where you live may come and go. The lesson is from the overall view of the book of Ephesians, according to grace and peace, that God has stated what he has done and is then calling us on the basis of what he's provided to live a Christ-like life. When George was hired by that company, he was hired to do a job. Little did he know, with him putting everything he had into it and his excitement and his anticipation, little did he know, there were people actually within that company who were betting against him. Folks, that's a shame on the church. Because I've known people in churches who they may not be doing it financially, but they have just about the same view of their brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to be here to encourage and to admonish one another. In fact, Ephesians 5.8 says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Why does he instruct us to walk as children of light? Because when we finish the first three chapters, you're going to see all that God's done for us in putting us or bringing us into the light in the Lord. As a Christian, George would be the first to give God the glory and the credit for what he went through. Yeah, he was the balloon hanging on the wall with people throwing darts at him. How different is that from some of your life experiences? Yeah, it was tough. But in Christ, he knows the grace of God, which brings him to that place to where even though he was formerly darkness, he now lives in the light of the Lord. But even though he didn't find out till some time later, he still had an incredible sense of peace by what he was going through. Folks, in chapters 1 through 3, the grace and the peace which Paul introduces as part of his salutation. And don't overlook it just because it's in the salutation. You say, well, that salutation looks like all of Paul's other salutations. And it does. For those of you who are under 30 years old, they actually used to teach people how to write letters. Some of you are looking at a letter. What's a letter? Not an A or a B. A letter was, you took a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen, and you'd date it, and you'd put dear so-and-so. Yeah, whoever you were writing the letter to. And you usually opened with some pleasantry. You know, that was kind of the format of a letter. And then in the body of the letter, and then at the end of the letter... You know, you would kind of close it in the same way. That was a letter. And I don't want us to see this introduction of grace and peace as just some format of a letter. Because believe it or not, in the first century world, there were formats to letter writing as well. 
But what Paul's setting up for us is to know the grace of God, know what God has graciously done for us so that our life in loving obedience will come along with the peace that he gives us. Even when you're the milk bottle of life and somebody's stacked on top of you and the baseballs are still flying your way. Folks, that's grace and peace. That's the grace and peace that the apostle is introducing here. And it's interesting because just before talking about the grace and peace, he makes what I would say is an incredible statement. To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Just like those darts and those baseballs coming at you, you've probably had plenty of verbal ammunition fired your way. But stop and think about this. Because of the grace, any who know the grace that God gives in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. You're a saint. That's a different concept in our culture today. We have such an unbiblical view of a saint. Do you know that throughout the entire New Testament, the word saint is always plural except for once? You know why? Because the church of Jesus Christ is made up of saints. We, we just don't use that terminology anymore because of what history, and, and there are other reasons why. You're a saint by God's grace. And let me make it clear, you would not be a saint by anything you can do. It don't matter how many times they met and voted on you. You wouldn't be a saint by anything you accomplish. I know some of you. And the ones I don't, I can say it with biblical certainty. You wouldn't be a saint by anything you could do. And I'm including myself in that. Don't ask my wife. But this grace and this peace, Paul is attributing to those who are the saints and are faithful. See, it's the grace that makes you saints, and it's the peace of God that carries you into living a faithful life in Christ Jesus. See, these aren't tweeners here. And unfortunately, we miss out. And so I trust that today we would understand that aspect of all those who are in Christ are saints. And God has already given us his grace so that as we live in obedience, his peace will carry us through. Let me make it crystal clear. That just because, you come a, just because you become a saint by God's grace doesn't mean everything's going to go your way. It does not mean that everything's going to go your way. Here's what you can know, though. By all that God's done for you in Christ, you can have peace in the midst of those darts and baseballs that are flying by. The peace that allows us to continue on in obedience to God because he graciously makes us saints and he faithfully calls us
to live for Christ. Knowing, hey, everything didn't go well for Christ. And Christ said to his followers, my peace I leave with you. What a great gift. George was the new guy. And George, like probably anyone else who's a sane, regular thinking person, could not imagine that people with his own, within his own company would be betting against his success. I mean, I mean, who can imagine that? But then we know anytime you get a group of human beings together, it doesn't take much for things to get off base quick. And oftentimes, there are non-Christians who look at our life as saints and they can't understand. That's because they don't know. They just don't know. Our life and the message of the gospel we share with them is one of the reasons God's put them in your life. In fact, when someone asked, the rich young ruler said, good teacher to Jesus. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see the problem with the question? What shall I do? Now, Jesus gave him some instructions on what to do. Go sell all you have and follow me. Give it to the poor and follow me. Well, that eliminated the I, because we would have to assume that the I was somehow wrapped up in who he was with those riches. But Jesus basically said, come follow me. And for us, as faithful saints, we need to be constantly following God. See, the gospel is a life that lives based on the gospel, not on our efforts. It's based on what Christ has done. And knowing the gospel allows me as a child to obey my parents. It allows me as a husband to love my wife. It allows me as a manager or a supervisor or somebody who has people working under me to treat them fairly and rightly and righteously. Now, before we get to all that, we're going to learn in these first three chapters about this grace that God gives. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you in this way. Yes, George did leave that office in just a matter of weeks. And let me tell you why. Within a month, he had been so successful, he was promoted to regional director. That was actually the position he was in when he found out what the tradition in the company was with new salespeople. So he didn't know that. Folks, you may not fully know and understand everything God's done for you by his grace, but it does not change who you are. You may not realize there are people out betting against you right now. Doesn't matter. God's given you the peace that even if you were to discover that, it does not change who you are by God's grace. George was promoted to regional director. In less than eight months, after that promotion to regional... So we're, we're talking a nine-month time period for a 23-year-old man who began in sales with his office betting against him. In a month's time, he was promoted to regional director. 
And eight months later, he had worked himself up to where he was able to purchase a franchise within the company. George was committed. He was committed first and foremost to his Savior. And he lived his life in that peace by the grace of God. Oh, in the midst of obstacles, but even in the midst of obstacles he wasn't aware of. And like I said earlier, George would be the first to tell you his success was by the grace of God. Let me tell you what thrills me the most about George. Within a few years, he left the secular business world and since that time has been consulting churches and preaching. (laughs) Man, I'm grateful God calls people like that. But don't you know somewhere in the back of George's mind, and I didn't ask him this personally, but I, just from what I know of myself and other human beings, I wonder how often George looks back and goes, man, I can't believe it. Over those first few weeks, they were actually wagering against me. Folks, by the grace of God, nothing can stand against you. By the grace of God. Whether we know about it or not, <laughs> And I'm convinced there's probably things going on that you're not even aware of. There's probably people who don't like you. If they had the opportunity, they'd cuss you out to your face. That's when ignorance is bliss. But that in no way determines or has anything to do with who you are as a saint by God's grace and the peace that passes all understanding that allows you to continue to live faithful in Christ Jesus. Your worst enemy? You. It's it's the nature you were born with. That's your worst enemy. You may get all worked up about, oh, Pastor John told me there's probably people against me that I don't even know about. Don't get paranoid. Your worst enemy is you. And God, by His grace, has saved you in spite of you. That's how much God loves you, what He's done for you in Christ Jesus. And that's how then He affords for us this peace in the midst of both the failures and successes in life. Saint Hear me, saint. Those who know God's grace personally, if you're struggling today, if you're not living in the peace that God offers, no matter what the circumstances are, I would simply say to you, repent. Just confess to God, God, I'm sorry, I haven't been trusting you. I haven't been trusting you when the darts of this life and the baseballs of this life are being hurled my way. Just repent. Confess that to God and ask for His forgiveness. You know, His Word tells us He'll forgive us. He'll forgive us. That's all by His grace. If you're here today and you're not a saint, and I mean, I hope it's been crystal clear, you are a sinner because you were born a sinner, and you've never personally recognized and known the grace of God, 
then you need to turn to what God has done for you in Christ. You need to personally confess, not only am I a sinner and I deserve God's wrath, I'm taking my hands off and turning to you, Christ. It's your only hope. Because it doesn't matter how much you try, doesn't matter how many successes you have in life, you will not know true peace and grace outside of what God has done for you in Christ. Even if no one is betting against you. Because remember, you're your own worst enemy. Turn to the victory that God gives by his grace in Jesus Christ. That would be my call to you today. That would be the call of God's word. For by grace you're saved. There's no other way. There's no other way. Would you join me in a word of prayer?